two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. And my name is Richard Pietro, and it's been a while since I published an episode of Stories from the Open Gov, but much like the Phoenix, this little podcast is reborn in a different form. And by that, I mean, I now have a co-host, Derek Alton. And Derek is the founder of the Canadian Open Data Society, or I should say co-founder of the Canadian Open Data Society. He's a newly minted head of community with Apolitical, and he's also a long-term friend of mine. So how are you doing, buddy? I am. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited to be uh, heading with you to Washington, D.C. for like the first in-person conference in well over two years. It's going to be really weird, but also incredibly exciting just to be around people and the energy and the, oh, I'm just, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. And just to bring people up to speed is as part of us being reborn, we're going to the code for America summit and we're going to be doing some live podcasting, I guess maybe quasi live podcasting of the summit. And uh, the way we're going to be doing it is um, for those of you who are sports fans, uh, we want to bring a little bit more humor and fun and a little bit of irreverence. Uh, if you're Canadian, you might be familiar with the Spit and Chicklets uh, podcast by Paul Bizanet or Biz Nasty. Or if you're an NFL fan, you might be familiar with the Pat McAfee show. So it's like Pat McAfee meets open government and civic tech. So uh, we're going to have a lot more um, uh, a lot more energy with these kinds of things from going forward. And uh, to kick off this new style and to kick off our trip to Arlington, Virginia for the Code for America Summit, we have our first guest. And uh, he's going to help us hype the event a little bit more because this is going to be a doozy. It's the first one, like Derek was saying, in a few years that we've actually been going on in person to, to, to an event. And, um, and this person is Ryan Coe. And he is the Code for America Chief of Staff. He's the former engagement manager at McKinsey & Company, who also happens to hold a master's degree in computer science and engineering from MIT. Derek, help me say hello to Ryan. Ryan, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Derek. <laughs> Well, great to have you here. I'm honored. Uh, it's always been a dream to be on the Pat McAfee show. So let's do it. <laughs> uh, so, Ryan, I'm going to ask you to maybe move your microphone just a little bit backwards. You're coming a little hot on us. Okay. But uh, trust me, we're, we're so far away from Pat McAfee right now. that. Uh, but I'm glad that you appreciate uh, the analogy. I don't have any stories about getting drafted or not yet. way into punching. Not yet. Right. Uh, I still hope yeah. for you. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. But I saw, position I, could play. I saw in your bio that you're a basketball guy. Yeah, yeah. I okay, mean, so you're based out of the West Coast. Which one's your team? I mean, uh, I grew up about 30 minutes south of uh, Oakland, so um, it's got to be the Warriors, right? So I was paying attention last night. Um, it was a good win. They finished the series. Moving on to the Western Conference Finals. Go Dubs. And, and, <laughs> and as an ardent Raptors fan, uh, I need to apologize and say thank you at the same time, obviously. Yeah. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was in the. Uh, I was actually at that last game 
uh, you were at game six. I was at game six. So in it was the very last game uh, ever at Oracle Arena uh, in Oakland. So how could I miss it? Um, sitting all the way at the very top, all the way in the very back, but couldn't <laughs> miss it. So. Wow. Well, I got to say, you're yeah. the first person that, that I've spoken with that's gone to a finals game for the Rapt- where the Raptors were present. So uh, I am definitely a little bit jealous on that one. Uh, but that's not why we're here. As much as I'd love to speak Raptors with you, buddy, uh, we're not going in that direction. We're talking about the Code for America Summit. Uh, you guys have a stellar lineup going on here. Um, and I guess my first question for you is like, what, what makes you so excited about this year's summit for Code for America? Yeah. Is it okay if I tell a quick story? Of course. Um, it's been more than two years since uh, the pandemic really started in force, right, in the United States. Um, the shelter in place started March 2020. And that was when we were trying to actually host our first ever in-person summit in Washington, D.C. area. Prior to that, most of our summits had been on the West Coast, and they'd been gradually building uh, two events where we could actually come to D.C. and kind of showcase not just ourselves, but all of the partners we work with and lift up you know, new and diverse and underrepresented voices who don't always get to see that D.C. stage. So we had all that set up. We kind of built all of that up in 2019, And then the pandemic kind of hit. We weren't able to do that. So canceled 2020, did a virtual summit in 2021. And I think the thing that excites me the most is that we're actually going to do it. It's actually happening. People have been waiting like almost three years for this. It's like (laughs) actually, actually happening, right? Since summit 2019, which was, I think, uh, May 20. Yeah, May 2019. We haven't been in person and had a big convening. So I think people are excited. People are ready to get together with appropriate COVID precautions, of course. But people are excited to get together and be in person and really do this. And, of course, there's the additional twist, right? It's actually uh, both a an in-person and a virtual summit. So there will be options available for both. Um, looking at the attendance numbers, it actually looks like it's about even. It's about half-half in-person and virtual. And there are a lot of people who really appreciate that. Now, it'll be a little clunky. Uh, I'm sure there will be interesting <laughs> AV situations we're going to not even have thought of that are going to have come up like, wait, oh, what if we mean to bring in this person to do this or that? So um, we'll, we'll, we'll do it live. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll take it as it goes, right? Like, I, I mean, that's, you know, this is that line. <laughs> if we're going to do it live, we'll forever be like, you know, it's bad mojo. It's okay. Bad. All right. Let me flip it then. Right. We will experiment and rapidly iterate very quickly because we don't really have a choice. It's what we're going to do. Things with the pandemic literally change all the time in terms of government regulations and case rates and things like that. So we've, uh, planned for many different types of unknowns but we know that we won't be able to catch them all so (laughs) we will stay nimble uh and rapidly move as we need to how's that yeah i I, i'm I'm really excited to see what happens because i've been stuck in my parents basement for the last couple years and i'm desperate to get out and see people but i'm also really curious about the hybrid because i know hybrid's been sort of that that holy grail that people have been talking about for years and and now the pandemic's forced us to start really thinking about what that could look like so I'm, i'm curious to see how that comes together and how we sort of build bridges between the virtual and the in-person have them weave together um, and, and connect us as one piece. I'm really curious to see how you guys do that. Yeah. I mean, I, it's, 
it's definitely going to be interesting for both, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. think conference attendants are used to having both. Um, the ability to say, oh, actually, I'm going to hop into a virtual session or I'm going to be in person, et cetera. So uh, it actually ends up meaning, by the way, that there's twice the content, um, which is actually kind of cool. Uh, it allows us to really, like, j- just to move the topic a little bit, like, if you think about uh, where public interest technology, civic technology has gone over the last uh, 10 years, this is the really interesting thing. When Code for America Summit first started, it was a very small convening just for our fellows, right? So we had three or four communities and maybe three or four fellows who were on one-year projects in each. So it was really a showcase of us, ourselves, Code for America and our government partners. And the participants were basically people who were in our fellows programs and the governments who were we worked with. Um, maybe a few hundred people showed up and maybe we'd have two or three partner organizations. Now we have 50 plus breakout sessions and, you know, dozens of main stage speakers representing again, dozens, if not hundreds of, uh, organizations, uh, nonprofits, governments, uh, and for-profit companies, uh, all over. And it's just really, really cool to see how the space has moved over the last 10 years. Um, While we will, of course, be showcasing a lot of our own work, there is so much that is happening and so much that is being showcased. And so actually, frankly, bringing it back, having this in-person and virtual experience allows us to actually put a lot more content out there, showcase a lot more people, highlight a lot more of their work and expand, I think, um, our, uh, in, in 2019, when our uh, former CEO and founder of Code for America, Jen Palka, transitioned to our current CEO, Amanda Renteria, Jen said, we're going to have to build a bigger tent. You know, that was kind of a really big uh, theme a couple years ago. And um, maybe we'll get to the theme in a second, but uh, we'll, we're building a bigger tent. And that's wonderful. And actually, both Derek and I have experiences running events, Derek on a larger scale with the Canadian Open Data Summit. But I know that one of the big problems with these kinds of things, especially when you have a national mandate like you guys do with so many stakeholders, you put out a call for for proposals and it becomes like, who are your favorite children, right? All of a sudden, like you got to greet and toss somewhere out of the way. It's like, who do we cut? And you try to fit people in as much as you can. And I remember uh, years ago, I went to a different summit, an international summit, and they tried to please everyone, all their stakeholders. And it was like eight or nine people in a panel for like 45 minutes. And that was just a terrible experience uh, because no one really had a full opportunity to go deep into what they were working on. So having this hybrid sort of satisfies not only the people that can't go to Arlington, Virginia – but also satisfy putting more content out there. So I think it's particularly genius what you came around with in terms of these concurrent ways of doing it. Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit about that. You know, we always put out a call for proposals because we want to make sure we're um, catching what's out there, right? Uh, But yeah, we usually get a couple hundred submissions. This year was uh, no different. looking at the numbers now actually i have a blog post on this that uh we published with all the numbers um and the way it worked was we assembled a content committee of folks from around the community um we asked them to read through all 225 plus submissions 
There were about 450 total people who submitted. Uh, and we curated something like 40 plus sessions uh, here across these four different tracks, operations and management, people power and community, policy and administration, and service design and delivery. And, you know, Richard, like you mentioned, it's really hard because it was there were so many quality submissions and so many people doing such interesting work and having such um, noteworthy examples of how they were changing government systems to be deliver more equitable outcomes and to be more human centered and to be more collaborative. And it was so hard, but this group, this content committee read everything. We had a little scoring rubric. And after a lot of debate, we ended up with our uh, 40 some odd acceptances. And I think the exciting thing that we're really hoping to highlight is if you scroll down a little bit, we actually show the race and ethnicity of both submitters and accepted submitters, as well as the gender. We really hope to kind of make this a standard practice uh, for diversity, equity, and inclusion that we're trying to be transparent about both who applied and who also was accepted. And so um, we've been doing this for a couple of years now uh, and believe that that's just incredibly, incredibly important. Yeah, as, as an advocate for open data, I think this is fantastic to have this information out there and people can see. Uh, and, and being able to com- compare between who submitted and then who was uh, uh, accepted, I think, is it, it, it's, it creates such an interesting place for really important and meaningful conversations to happen. So huge, you know, uh, hats off to you guys for, for doing that and being so open and transparent and, and vulnerable with your process. I think it's huge. And uh, I know I'm looking at this now, I'm like, man, I need to bring this to all the different uh, groups that I work with that organize things and see if we can make this the new standard. <laughs> this is now going to be, you know, five years from now, I'll be like, this is now standard. Everybody's going to be doing this. We would love that. And it was actually a couple of years ago when we have invited speakers who said, hey, you know, um, I would love to do this, but uh, I want to make sure that your conference or your panel or whatever is diverse. So can you please tell me who else is going to be there? Um, And when people started doing that, we started realizing, yeah, actually, instead of waiting for people to ask, we could just publish um, and share information so people kind of know what they're getting into before they even start making plans to go. So uh, we're excited about things like this. And, and just a bit of a public service announcement because I've done smaller events on a smaller scale. This also applies for smaller events. And I think especially if you're a local organizer, one of the things that typically happens because it's difficult running an event and it's difficult you know, recruiting and sourcing good speakers, then you go to your Rolodex, right? You go to the low-hanging fruits, you go to the people that you know, and all of a sudden it creates that echo chamber of like it's always the same people coming around. So if you really want to run an event – especially locally, um, push yourself a little bit. Look, you know, reach out to people that you may not know, but you know of them. I think more often than not, you'd find that they're very willing to help out in some way, shape, or form. And um, that that what Code for America is doing here and what Derek will be doing in the future applies to any event. So, all right. So, (laughs) with that being said, I was kind of expecting a bit of a response there. So... (laughs) We're having fun on this one. Um, I want to get right into the actual event itself, uh, if you don't mind. Uh, and I'm going to pull up sort of, you know, you guys have essentially a, a theme for the event. You're calling it, you know, building the path forward together. And I'd love, Ryan, you know, tell us a little bit more about 
why you guys chose that theme and uh, uh, and and talk about that direction. What does that path forward look like for you? Yeah, thanks. So this theme is really about those last two words. There's a emphasis on that word forward and there's an emphasis on the word together. I mean, let's just take a moment to appreciate what we've all been through over the past couple of years, right? There's been a, a, a pandemic that has completely changed the way we work, completely changed the way things operate. I mean, look no further than supply chains and things like that, and completely changed how governments work with people and interact with people and deliver services or in many cases, fail to deliver services to people, right? Uh, we've also had a global reckoning on racial uh, injustice, right? Um, largely precipitated by murders such as those of George Floyd. But we've had a global reckoning of that. Um, and that was all just 2020, right? Uh, we've had a change in presidential transition, um, a, a possible insurrection in... <laughs> <laughs> right, like, like we've we've, yeah. we've just gone in such interesting directions, yeah. and so those two words, forward and together, are very much about what now, what next. I mean, I we've seen so much good and so much bad happen over the last couple of years, but it's been a lot, right? We've seen some governments really, really pivot and say, "Oh, I need to take this paper in person process and not have people come in." And have them do this completely online. We've seen some governments figure out how to connect different data sets so that they can automate services instead of asking people to submit their own information. Um, we've seen acad academics, we've seen nonprofits really talk about actual, for example, automated filing of taxes because that's something that can actually start to happen, right? And so now that government is starting to think creatively and push the envelope a little bit, some of it forced uh, by the <laughs> pandemic, or, or you know, but it was a great. Really, the pandemic was a great catalyst for this. The, the thing it really that we've was been doing for ten years. Yeah, it, it, it really was, and actually, it it was one of the maybe let's say it was one of the darker things, right? It was like okay, bad news. There's a pandemic. Good news. People are actually asking us questions. We've been trying to have them to ask us for years. Right. There was kind of this feeling a little bit at Code for America of like, oh, wow, people are actually asking us. People it's are our time to try like, now. <laughs> I don't have two years to push out the next release of this website. I yeah. have two months. So what do I do? Right. I need this data now. I can't wait for my vendor to, to send it to me in three weeks. I need it now. What can I actually do? And it wasn't just Code for America, right? It was actually many of the organizations who were coming to Summit, presenting at Summit, um, who figured out ways to help. And that's public servants, that's nonprofits, that's um, uh, for-profit companies. But there's this entire ecosystem and community that we continue to try to build and convene and celebrate and lift up at Summit so that they can connect, network, and together we can hopefully figure out the path forward. So um, that's the theme. That's what we're really excited about. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we're up to. And I, I absolutely love the theme. And there's so many, <laughs> there's so many layers to it that I, I kind of want to dive into with you. I mean, the, the quote that comes to mind as, as you're talking is like, don't waste a good crisis. <laughs> Um, and I think <laughs> you, you said it, not me, but I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not agreeing. If that makes any sense. And so I, 
Yeah. Well, it, it, it's 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 this interesting thing. So, like, uh, you know, before uh, jumping in with a political, which is where I'm going next, uh, I've spent the last seven years working for the government of Canada uh, in this sort of digital transformation space. And it's been this interesting thing, like the digital transformation space with governments has been the sort of innovation space, which means it's off to the side. Uh, you know, where cool things happen over there, it's not mainstream. And the pandemic forced everything to go back to mainstream. Like everything, all that stuff had to be mainstream. All of a sudden, you know, getting calls left, right, and center. How do we do this digitally? Uh, and leaning on you know, all sorts of different tech groups in a way that hadn't been leaned on before to help bring that knowledge to the government so we could do it yesterday kind of thing. And the speed was incredible. Um, but the fear now is like, how do you avoid snapback? How do we go forward, not backwards, as we come out of the pandemic? And I know I've, I've had conversations with colleagues in Australia. This is a big concern they have <laughs> that, you know, you know, now that things are going back to normal, if we can say that, uh, you know, we, we shouldn't be, there's this danger that we're starting to go back to old habits. Public servants are being brought back into working in the office in old ways. And so this question of like, you know, how do we keep moving forward? How do we build this momentum? Let's not snap back. Let's go forward. What does that look like? Is something that I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how that's explored um, at the, at the summit in a meaningful way. Uh, there's so many, so many different angles to this, right? So the first, the, I'll just go through a list in no particular order. The first one that comes to mind is on the policy side, maybe not big P like legislative policy, let's call it little P administrative policy. There were so many waivers that were put into place at the beginning of the pandemic when everything was shelter in place. So for example, in-person interviews were often uh, changed from mandatory to optional for people to access their benefits. Um, there were many paper steps such as having to fax something in that maybe you could change to sending an email instead of faxing. All these different ways to um, reduce what is known as administrative burden, right, or the the time tax of, of, of a lot of this. A lot of those waivers might be going away because they're expiring. And so will those waivers get extended, right? There were, And then on the big P policy side, uh, there are – Programs and services such as the child tax credit, right, which were passed as part of um, initial uh, congressional response to the pandemic. And then the question, the open question remains, how long will these services be extended for? So on the policy side, there are a lot of really interesting things that hopefully continue to move forward. And then on the operational side, Derek, that was the other thing that really came to mind. Um I mentioned earlier different departments actually sharing data. Will they continue to do that? Will they continue to build data hubs and APIs to actually say, oh, um, the tax uh, body has the parental employment data and the Department of Education has all of the children's information. So if you're trying to evaluate a service for, for example, uh, child nutrition, Matching that data source will actually allow automated targeting, and then we can just send people checks or debit cards instead of having to make them apply and then have to um, ask. I heard this during the pandemic, K-12 teachers to uh, go around and tell all of their students, hey, you're eligible for this child nutrition subsidy. Go get it, right? Just automatically send it because the government has the information to do it. It's just siloed in a couple different places. So um, will those things continue to move forward? Uh, or will we move back to uh, a world where it was a little bit less about that and a little bit more about like making sure we stay uh, in a very risk-averse, siloed, uh, policy-compliant environment? Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but there's so many different angles, and that's a lot of what's actually going to happen at Summit is a lot of people are going to be trying to think about and push and present ways that some of this change can stick. 
It's really easy to go back to the well, isn't it? You know, you're you're forced into a situation and then all of a sudden you go back to baseline, which is that snapback that Derek's talking about. And I think, you know, particularly I I feel very strong as, as Derek does like the path forward a little bit because we don't want to lose the momentum. Right. If anything, we want to indoctrinate a lot of these new operational procedures and policies and things along those lines, not just working remotely, but the culture that's developing of. And I don't think that's the right word. I'm actually going to throw it to you guys a little bit. One of the elements that came out of the, the pandemic was not just a sense of change, but a sense of urgency to change. And the speed of government is something that a lot of people are very critical of. I want to talk about that a little bit before we get into some of the meat and potatoes of what the summit's going to be like. And I think that path forward, which is we're tired of crawling, right? Let's let's put a let's turn this little you know lawnmower engine and put a V6 in there, kind of deal, and really get that that urgency or keep that energy into this change that we've been witnessing inside government. Can, can you guys speak to that? Because you're both, you know, very close to government. I'm one of the guys that's been just sort of on the outsides, sort of looking in a lot of the times. Yeah, I, I think I think uh, for me that the big thing that uh, to this point, Richard, is that uh, that V big V6 or V8 engine was always there. It just was kind of just never used and the pandemic all it's enforced government to be like we need we need to use this uh but i think it was a wake-up call i know there's a lot of us who work in government who are like wow we didn't realize we ourselves in the system didn't realize government could work this fast and uh that was sort of a big eye-opening experience like now we know it can the, the genie's out of the bottle now <laughs> we know that it can uh the question for me is how do we make this the new the new normal how does this become the new norm? Uh, how do we, you know, move away from 19th, 20th century government and and really live in this digital age that we we, we are now in uh, and avoid that snapback? There's a lot of governments who would say that, actually, Derek, that we've been wanting to do this. And actually, a lot of these waivers and a lot of these forcing functions and the fact that there are people who needed help right now, right away in the middle of a crisis allowed them the ability to do that. For example, um, there are a lot of cases of emergency procurements where instead of having to write an RFP and put out a really long list of requirements and actually go and make a competitive bid and evaluate the responses and take two years to do that, Different governments actually found ways around that and actually said, hey, um, I'm going to build this in a more uh, agile and iterative way, uh, and I'm going to do a procurement that's like that too. So instead of procuring a big monolithic end-to-end system, I'm going to procure modules really quickly and put those really small, tightly defined modules out to bid and get those done real quick. And instead of trying to... um, decide all my requirements ahead of time because I won't even know what those are in two years. Uh, I'm just going to say I need a system that can deliver on XYZ business and social outcome, right? That's just a classic example of something. Then when we talk to people in government, they would actually say, we've been trying to do this. We've just never had the uh, the, the, the V6, so to speak, to, to, to do it. Turns out it was there. So... Well, yeah. I, I think the big thing for it, it's like it, almost like the political cover, the political um, space to do this stuff. It's like we could always do this. We knew we could always do this. We just never had permission to. And all of a sudden, it's like now you need to. It's like, okay, we're ready. We can do this. <laughs> Thank you yeah, for letting us do the, the thing we could always And that's do. actually one of the interesting things is that like um, – I, I want to be really careful that like nonprofits like Code for America, we, when we um, – 
talk about things like summit. We talk about innovation and change and being a change agent. We really view ourselves as doing that with government, not around it. Right. Um, I think oftentimes uh, outsiders can come in and say like, Oh, I'm going to do better and build this thing outside. And reality is a little bit of that, of course, because you want to push the envelope. Um, But I'd like to introduce a bit of a different frame, which is that nonprofits like Code for America, academics, um, and yes, a little bit of the private sector as well, can show government what's possible, but also absorb some of the risk for them, right? So um, public servants can point to us and say like Code for America or um, uh, New America, Results for America, the Beck Center for Social Innovation, Social Impact, like – that they said something, they studied something, and we're going to try it, right? We provide some cover, and we absorb some of that risk, and we help them experiment, and we're there to support them when they run into obstacles and can't get around them. So I really do view this as like not like innovating outside government, but really helping government push that accelerator, help them find um, that faster engine uh, on w- with them. So that's really kind of an interesting thing about this community. Well, I think one of the things that's going to be really interesting to see, and, and I'm, I'm looking at some of the sessions that, that I'm excited to go to, is uh, that the context is shifting. So we're moving from a pandemic-based context to whatever's next-based context. And so what that means is that the relationship between government and the private sector and not-for-profits is going to shift. Uh, I mean, we're already seeing this. So during the pandemic, governments kind of really stepped forward because we had to, and now uh, and <laughs> spent a lot of money um, to make things happen very quickly. That's going to shift. You're going to start to see governments start to step back a bit. And into that void, there needs to be new relationships with not-for-profits in the private sector. And um, that's that's the piece I'm really interested to see. Like, what do these new relationships look like uh, as government starts to step back more and more and you see more space for the private sector and not-for-profits to serve, move more to the forward uh, end of delivering of services and, and engaging uh, in this space? Yeah, I mean, our overall kind of framework for a lot of this is called human-centered government, and you'll see elements of this throughout Summit. So um, just to highlight a couple of themes, I think there's a really, really big theme around true incorporation of people with lived experience in government. And what we mean by that is that, you know, in the private sector, you always hear about user testing and testing services with users, but not in a reactive way, but in a truly proactive way to actually say, hey, if I'm designing a service for people who are eligible for um, for something, or if I'm targeting a certain um, underrepresented population, or if I'm targeting a certain neighborhood, or I'm trying to um, do something, whatever the government is trying to do, first, maybe we should ask that community before we actually try to do anything. And second, perhaps more interesting than just incorporating them after the fact, maybe we should co-design with them. And so you'll see a lot of sessions in service design and delivery track, um, as well as in the um, people in community track that are about this, that are about true co-design, as opposed to just community engagement, right? Which, of course, is very important. But um, kind of flipping the table so that it's not like government in power, designing a thing, and then pushing it to people. Like, People, the actual constituents, right, the taxpayers, uh, the people who live there, the people who would actually access and use services are actually involved in designing because it turns out that that actually makes it makes it a lot more efficient um, when they're actually able to say what they actually need and show what the obstacles are and the things to get around. Right. It ends up being a lot more collaborative and a lot more human and community centered. And so that's a really exciting shift of paradigm um, and uh 
turns out that that's actually a common practice already, right? Being a lot quicker with iteration, understanding feedback um, much quicker. Uh, and so we want to continue to help governments do that. So there's a lot in here that showcases this. Well, um, and I, th- I think it's something that excites me because like we're now moving to a phase where it's going to be much more of government as a platform. So government serves as a platform on which the community, not-for-profits, private sector comes and really does a lot of the service delivery pieces. Uh, and so I'm, I'm excited to see all the different examples of this being done and, and showcasing. Like There's a lot of different sessions that showcase this is how we do things differently. This is what government as a platform means and looks like uh, that's you know much more you know citizen-centered in terms of how we uh, deliver, how we design and deliver uh, the services we need to make a, a better society and a better world. Yeah, and I'll, 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 uh, I'll touch upon another theme that I think is really interesting, which is that over the past couple of years, uh, government has really started pushing this idea of customer service, right? Uh, this idea of customer satisfaction. And um, I personally don't love the word customer when I think about myself. I'm like, I'm not a customer of my government, right? I, I have a relationship with my government and, you know, without getting into philosophy and social contracts and stuff. So, but let's just call it the... Let's just call it, you know, um, resident or human satisfaction and um, and experience, right? And that's been really, really interesting to see uh, because it, it's it's great. I mean, I get a survey when I get off a flight, right? American Airlines asked me, "Hey, how was the flight?" Right? Um, I, maybe that should happen when I file my taxes, or maybe that should happen when um, I go get some emergency support. Right. Or uh, I don't know, register my child for school or whatever it is. Um, And so that's really the interesting thing is this like service orientation is starting to really take hold. Again, Derek, to your earlier point, I think that was always there in government, but it's really been given this uh, urgency and this and, and, and government paying attention to what people really need and want and are asking for. So um, the community orientation and cent- centricity, as well as this like satisfaction of service um, uh, has been really interesting to see. And you'll see that if you go through the agenda of, of summit, you'll see that everywhere. Um, you'll see a ton about collaborating with government. You'll see a ton about engaging community uh, and you'll see a ton about like, how do we make services so that people have high customer satisfaction. Yeah, I mean, the term that we use all the time is like user-centered design. Like, how do we put our users at the middle of everything that we do? And that's now becoming more standard and more normalized, which is great to see. I I got a question for you, Ryan, real quick about uh, some of this um, customer service angle, which again, I totally agree with you. It is god-awful language. I've had this conversation with others in the past. Is it like citizen, citizen is not necessarily the right word. It doesn't even roll off your tongue, but there is a term we need to come up with to describe this new way of describing essentially a taxpayer and a non-taxpayer because, you know, young people are not taxpayer um, unless you're talking about like, you know, sales tax. Anyways, I'm getting lost here. What I'm going on on this one is something I should, I think, and I'm going to give credit, I think, to Derek. I think he's the one who first introduced me to this term, which was closing the loop. And I'm very much an engaged citizen in, in many different forms. Um, but I, the consultations, the government consultations, and I apologize for my language. And actually, I will sort of, you know, uh, you know, stop myself, but they're bull Huey. 
right? It, it's, it feels like a, a checkmark item. We got to do the consultation. I've done deputations to, to local governments, but a lot of the times it feels as though you're talking to a wall. We're just going to go through the motions because we're legally obliged to. We got to do the, you know, the, the, the fan service equivalent to the Phantom Menace and the fans, right? You know where I'm going with this. The checkbox. Exactly. And... <laughs> Yeah, and and then I think it was there you said what we're trying to do now in government is closing the loop. So this is not just getting the input in, but creating that that motion, that cycling. We got the input. This is what we did, and keeping those people that were in the room. This is how you directly impacted policy, right? That's what I'm particularly excited in. I just don't see it enough in government yet. Yeah, I mean, how bad is it that you actually go take the time to listen to people take the time and energy to show up and then you write it down and do nothing with that information, right? That, in fact, is perhaps possibly worse than not yeah. engaging people at all because then you engage the community, they show up, they tell you what they actually think, and then you do nothing with that information. So to your point, Richard, to your point, Derek, about closing the loop, that's a big part of these concepts such as co-design and participatory government, right? It's this idea that like you actually are continuing to go back. And then you connect that to the whole agile iterative thing. And you can say, see, I had a release in two weeks. This is what I got to. This is what I didn't get to. Tell me again what your feedback is, right? Um, we've seen some governments that actually uh, pay people and put them on payroll for the sole purposes of consulting on their services. So we've seen people, uh, governments, for example, um, uh, I'll, I'll highlight a state government actually paid 10 Medicaid beneficiaries, put them on payroll and contracted them to tell them what the Medicaid uh, registration process was like. And they would test with these 10 people. Hey, what if I sent you a text message? What time would you want that text message? What would it say? What would get you to actually um, remind you that you have to submit this form to your insurance company, whatever it is, like they're actually able to do that. So instead of like having a big meeting in a conference room at a city hall or a state government somewhere, and then putting out some notice and then maybe some people show up actually hiring people and making it a part of their thing, compensating them is actually a really interesting thing. Um, so anyway, just one example, but there's so much there and gosh, I feel like I could talk about that for an hour, but, uh, uh sorry. Yeah. And, and you know what? I just saw Derek's eyes light up because I think we're going on the same place on this one, but I love this reference and I'm going to give it to you right now because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm going to, Upstage Derek a little bit before he gets in front of me. There's a Canadian civic engagement uh, uh, individual by the name of Dave Meslin. He's written a book. He's done a lot of great stuff. But he did a TEDx uh, presentation about 10, 15 years ago. And it still gets a lot of play to this day. But more importantly, he has this analogy. Imagine if government advertised and marketed civic engagement, like come to our consultation or whatever, the same way that Nike advertises. Like imagine how much more people would come out to these things or vice versa. Imagine if Nike advertised their shoes the same way government advertises civic engagement, they would never No one would buy a shoe. Exactly. No one would buy a shoe. <laughs> so um, we, we got to start thinking about uh, wrapping things up here, Ryan. But uh, And I want to get back to the summit a little bit here. Uh, this, we just, we started off by saying like, this is going to be big. It's the first time in several years that we've been able to do this. Not only has 
uh, is there a hunger for something like this? But Code for America has grown. They have a much larger community. They have much larger impact within governments. Um, so I got to ask you, um, are there any surprises or anything that uh, you want to, you know, like this is your, give us your sales pitch for this thing beyond some of the things you said. Like, what should we be expecting a little bit at the summit that, uh, you know, we got we got things in store for you. Yeah, I can't spoil anything. Gosh, um, <laughs> there, there there will be a couple of surprises. I'll 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 leave that there. Stay tuned. Oh. There, there will be there will be a couple of surprises. Um, I I, <laughs> I wish I could say more. Um, I probably shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Big things to be announced. You gotta come. You gotta show up, and you'll find out. <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Uh, I, I won't. I won't push any harder than I did, or because I tend to be a little bit pushy that way. But um, Derek, before we, we we start wrapping things up here about the summit, I know uh, you went in detail with the agenda uh, and and saw some a few things. And maybe I'd love to hear your thoughts, and maybe Ryan at the same time, just sort of a cursory look at some of those. Uh, you know, breakout sessions, not just keynotes. And actually, real fast, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention some of the keynotes that will be there because uh, you do have some heavyweights coming in. I'm just going to put it on the screen right now. Uh, we got Alicia. Actually, you know, uh, Ryan, if you be yeah, so kind. Uh, yeah. Alicia Menendez from MSNBC is going to be there. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Claire Martirana, who's the federal chief information officer, will be there. Uh, Claire has been in this space for a while and has just really bringing uh, some exciting ideas to the executive office of the president. Um, Mina Shang is, is going to be there, who currently is the administrator of the U.S. Digital Service. Um we're going to have uh, Robin Carnahan, who leads uh, USGSA, Rob Bonta, the Attorney General of California. Um, and just I'm just scrolling and scrolling, and there's just a ton of folks, some of whom are Code for America staff, but many who are from our partner organizations, who are from governments we work with, uh, and from academia. Uh, it's it's going to be a blast. And, and, and Derek, uh, yeah, go for it, Derek. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, there's going to be so many different – and I'm really excited in particular to see, hear Alicia speak because um, uh, one of the things that Richard and I have talked a lot about is how do we communicate? How do we communicate this stuff effectively in a way that engages beyond the usual suspects? And I think that's something I'm really excited to sort of get her take on. She works in it. I mean, she's a professional communicator. How do you do it? How do you tell good, compelling stories that get beyond the usual suspects and bring people in to see how important this stuff is and to want to be engaged, to be excited to be engaged? Uh, I think other themes that are kind of interesting. We're talking earlier about, you know, how, you know, a lot of really interesting things happened during a pandemic. Uh, we saw new ways of doing things, but how do we make sure they're not flashes in the pan? And sort of getting into some of these more like, uh, dare I say, infrastructure type questions around things like procurement. You know, how do we do procurement well? How do we do hiring well? How do we bring in and how do we maintain and keep in good people into this stuff? Uh, and so I'm, some of those 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 general ideas are things that, that really kind of, uh, Grab my attention because this is like, how do we not snap back is the big question for me right now. And these sessions, I think, are going to help us figure out how do we not just not snap back, but actually move forward together uh, in a way that brings us in, bakes it right into the infrastructure. So it's the first thing we do as opposed to the new thing we do. So we have these four, just real quick. We've got these four 
tracks policy administration, people power and community, service design and delivery and operations and management. And every year I am shocked at how many people show up in operations and management and say, I want to change procurement. I want to change operations. There are these three archaic little policies that prevent me from hiring the talent I need. And they come with all of these great ideas and energy and show all of the different ways that they're actually changing things, blocking and tackling in the trenches of what the hard thing is. So um, all the tracks are great, but there is always a special place in my heart for the operations management track. And that's the sexy track, obviously. I mean, <laughs> nothing gets my motor running more than talking about operations. And But uh, it's the hardest thing, right? And it's the, the, it matters. It's, it's, it really matters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway. <laughs> so um, for full disclosure, we've had someone in the background uh, from the Code for America team that uh, has helped us a little bit here and there with some of the stats and some of the details, making sure that we're, you know, make, you know, being accurate with the information we're given, but I want to bring her on board for a few moments and I want to say, hi, everyone say a big hello to Marlena Medford. (laughs) And uh, Marlena, if you could unmute yourself. Uh, And the reason why I want to bring Marlena in right now is to give her an introduction because she's brand new to the team. She has been on the job for a week. You are the new director of communications for Code for America. Correct. And yep. um, if you'd be so kind and introduce yourself to to the folks that will be hopefully listening to this um, before the event begins. Hi, everyone. Marlena Medford and thrilled to be here a week in and couldn't have picked a better time to be joining. This will be my first summit in person, and I'm just thrilled to be a part of it all. Hey, Marlena, what are you most excited about? I think I'm most excited about the community, uh, seeing a lot of people who, quite frankly, I've had relationships with via Zoom for the past two years, and we'll finally get to meet and and have a sense of connection um, and just joy, honestly, because there really is something magnetic about this event. It's um, A, to get a spot um, here as a speaker is a distinguished thing. And uh, I can tell you, having been on the outside recently, it's something that people vie for, they prep for. There's a lot of, of energy heading into the event. So then to finally get a spot, it's something that is exciting. It's something that people feel a lot of sense of pride about. And then once you're uh, in the event, just seeing all the other people, it's sort of there's a who's who, if you will. It's it's like a going to, I don't know, I kind of feel like it's like the Coachella of Civic Tech. <laughs> <laughs> I really think it's it's like an exciting thing to see, you know, all the people that show up and you're trying to plan your sessions and make sure you squeeze in all the good talks. And it's just, it's so needed. And it's so, um, especially right now, I think people really need uh, a pick-me-up. I think we all do. And uh, this couldn't be um, more on point for that. Well, and, and it's interesting that the Coachella reference, because like the thing that comes to mind for me, also like Burning Man is another one that came to mind for me that, you know, that thing that people go to. But the thing about these events is that it's an experience and it's an experience that people will look back on and the relationships they make uh, through these experiences are things that, that last way beyond the event itself. So, so happy that it's happening, happening in person and virtual. I mean, this is going to be it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, yes. And actually, before we close things out, I'm actually going to put Ryan on the spot for a moment here because, you know, we would give you a bit of a bio and a little bit of an introduction, Ryan, but I think Marlena perhaps deserves a little bit more because I'm sort of, you know, flying off the seat of my pants right now. But Ryan, you are the chief of staff for Code for America. 
which means you had a hand in hiring Marlena. Uh, and this might be a bit of an opportunity for, you know, why did you bring Marlena on board? What does she bring to the team that I know she had mentioned she had been, she, she has been in the civic engagement community for a long time, the civic tech community for a long time. But, you know, please, you know, give her, give her the big head as she's uh, <laughs> coming yeah. I mean, to me, it's exactly that. It's Marlena's actually able to take the expertise and information from being in the space and communicate it very, very clearly. And we need more of that, right? So I'm going to connect this. Like we need Marlena's expertise and talents to be able to bring this to more and more governments. I, I, there is $200 billion of IT spent. There are millions and millions of public servants Marlene is going to play such an important role in helping us communicate and spread and share Code for America's principles, all highlight, lift up the community, and accelerate our work in changing the government system together. And and Marlena, oh, wow. I looked at her LinkedIn, and it's very impressive. She's got a journalism background and everything, right? She's right in there. But Marlena, I want to switch gears a little bit and, and put the ball in your court, which is, you do have a very impressive resume. You've been in a lot of different places, done a lot of different work, but you chose Code for America for a reason. And I think this is, you know, obviously Ryan has got to be one of those reasons. The dude's just killer. Uh, but uh, tell us, like, why did you choose to, to join uh, Code for America and, and their fine organization? Honestly, to me, for a long time, it's been a beacon of hope. It's been a proof point of what's possible. So many of us have looked to Code for America as inspiration and seeing that it's possible to really raise the bar when it comes to government. And, and as Ryan talked about doing it, you know, shoulder to shoulder in collaboration with government. And as somebody who's worked in government and with government, it was uh, just a path that I always wanted to venture down. And when the opportunity presented itself, I didn't even think twice. And it really just feels humbling and uh, incredibly exciting to finally be a part of it. And I can't wait to continue the great work that this team has already uh, already proven that they're capable of and just take it to that next level and amplify it however I can. <laughs> yeah, well, a week in, you're already a grizzled veteran of the team. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a week in. I can't believe it. It feels like it's been a lot longer, but, you know, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. So speaking of all this, we should probably talk about what we're going to be working with Marlena on, uh, Richard and I, through the summit over the next couple of days, um, because we are going to keep this. Actually, time Larry, before we do that, I just uh, once again, we're improvising this new style a little bit and find like, you know, water finds its own level. And I just had an idea. I'm going to interrupt you because Ryan does need to go. He does have a hard stop right now. And uh, so let's just say goodbye to Marlena and Ryan so they can, you know, get on to their lives. And then you and me, Derek, we'll talk a little bit about what we'll be bringing to Code for America and what we'll be doing from a live podcasting there. So Ryan, Marlena, thanks so much for allowing us to be there. Ryan, thank you so much. It's very early right now. We're recording this on Saturday morning uh, for you. It's uh, It's been a great conversation. Uh, uh, Derek, let's give him a good goodbye. All right, thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for having us. We're honored to be on your show. <laughs> a lot of fun. Thank you, guys. All right. So, yeah, Derek, um, I interrupted you real fast, but please keep going on. Yeah, tell the fine people what we'll be doing in Arlington, Virginia uh, for the next few days. 
Yeah, so we are trying something new and exciting. We are trying to, and and we talked a wee tiny bit about this at the beginning, but it, it's probably worth going over again. We're trying to bring the the energy, but also the deeper diving, the analysis that you often see with sports and sporting events. We want to bring that to the Code for America Summit. We want to show people how much energy and how much fun these events can be uh, through basically a semi-live podcast uh, type format where we're going to be throughout the summit, we're going to be talking to all sorts of different people, uh, whether it's participants, whether it's speakers, whether it's organizers, uh, to really understand what's their experience, what are they taking away from this, what are uh, both the key highlights, but trying to dig actually deeper into what's happening to be like, what are the themes that are starting to emerge? What really matters from what's happening here and what are people taking away and how is this changing things uh, and so we're going to be doing a bunch of different activities uh throughout the, the couple days we, we really encourage uh, everybody to come find us we'll be there we'll be fairly obvious we'll have a table uh and we encourage people we encourage all of you to come find us tell us about your experience tell us about your ideas what excites you what is really on your brain uh what makes you nervous <laughs> uh, all these things we really want to hear from you throughout the event and and stay tuned because there's gonna be more and more of these podcasts that we're going to be putting out through the event to really highlight these, these themes and these energy. And, and I love, um, you know, you brought up that we're using a lot of the sporting analogies, like a pregame show and a postgame show and the analysis that comes on, like breaking down plays and getting into it. But another um, analogy that I like to use for what I think we're trying to do for those that are non-sporting folk, uh, which is like election coverage. Right. Election coverage, you'll go, you know, you'll have the main sort of, you know, studio where you have the analysts let's break down that race. Let's do this. Let's do that. What is the bigger message uh, nationwide and even perhaps even internationally? And then you'll send it off to the local races with a local reporter that speaks to a local candidate or local volunteers and really giving you that fulsome picture. Now, obviously, those post game shows and pregame shows have millions and millions of dollars behind them. It's just going to be me and Derek on this one. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and Marlena, obviously, Marlena will be helping us out. Uh, she is still uh, she's still in the green room listening in, and she's giving us a, yeah, absolutely. Um, but we'll do our best to essentially provide the kind of coverage that can not only help those that are in attendance in terms of context as to what they just heard, but also bring the conference to people around the world who may not have been there. Yeah. Beyond just like... Derek, okay. All right, this is something you and I have gone back and forth quite a bit on. You have that capacity sometimes. I definitely don't. A lot of times these conferences are recorded. But sitting down for 45 minutes, listening to someone speaking on a microphone, it's not the way I absorb content, right? I love someone to describe to me what's going on, give me the sort of short burst, and that's what we're going to do, right? And, And at least try to do. Yeah, it's 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 about bringing some energy and entertainment to to this kind of thing, and 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 the idea is: look, if you're not able to attend the summit, or if you want, if you were there but you want to have a brief reminder of the key key things that came out of it, this is something you can go to. You don't have to consume hours and hours and hours of video footage. Although I might, because I'm a huge nerd. Um, <laughs> You can come here, you can come listen, and we'll give you sort of the key highlights that you need to take away uh, from the summit. That's really what we're hoping to do. Exactly. And we'll see if it works. If it works, then uh, we'll keep doing it and, and perhaps go to other conferences. We'll ask Marlena to maybe, you know, put together a nice referral for us that the concepts seem to work for, us, for for Code for America. So much like what Ryan was saying, is like this is about iteration and trying new things. And more importantly, keeping that that 
forward together thing, right? And we got to find new ways to communicate about this that reaches to a larger audience. Um, So before I actually close out my, you know, this session here, uh, any sort of final thoughts about the the, the summit or things that Ryan said, uh, Derek, that was particularly, um, I don't know, that resonated with you? I mean, I mean, I think the key things for me is first off, just sheer energy and excitement about the opportunity to, to leave my parents' basement and see. <laughs> okay. So sorry, sorry. He's gonna be too humble to say it. So I will say it for him. Derek actually lives in London, England, but he was working for the Canadian government. It's a weird sort of situation. He was working for the Canadian government, moved to London, England. Then the pandemic arrived and says, Well, if you're a Canadian citizen and, and you're working for the Canadian government, you can't live outside of Canada. So he had to come back and was sort of forced literally in that it's very in that yellow drop ceiling basement. Yeah, this is where <laughs> I've been living for the last so just an opportunity to to be with people and see people who you know share, you know, it's like the, the family coming together, share that that common passion. That is for me the biggest and most exciting thing. The theme though is one that really deeply resonates with me uh, as one of excitement, but one of also concern and worry. Uh, I I mean, like many people, I look at what's like what we're in right now and what's ahead of us, and I'm like, oh my god, this is terrifying. Um, and we need to find a way to move forward and do it together. And so it's both the forward piece. So we're not snapping back. We're actually moving into a new world, a new reality, a more human-centered reality. Uh, but also together, I mean, we didn't talk about how ridiculously polarizing the world has become, uh, how divided it's become. And this idea of togetherness, I think, is going to be so important of bridging these these divides and, and finding a common way to move forward together um, uh, so that you know we can tackle the big challenges that we are currently facing um, and will continue to face. So they're really excited to meet with amazing people and then really uh, bring some of them around this theme and and, and learn from them. I mean, we're going to have showcasing of amazing ideas and projects. And I think if we could even take half of them and scale them or even a third of them and scale them, we'd have such a different world. So so really, yeah, I just can't express how excited I am uh, to be doing this. Well, what a better way to wrap things up on that one. And uh, we want to thank, obviously, Marlena Medford, Ryan Coe for, for taking part. Um, and as usual, uh, some things have not changed from the old podcast. We're going to ask you to, you know, leave a rating or leave a comment, share and share like, obviously, get it out there. Help us get the word out. And uh, if you have any ideas on how to make the podcast better, if you have any ideas for stories or guests that you'd like to have featured, please uh, let me know and let Derek know, and we'll do our best to get those guests. So until next time, let's make it open.